you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings 18, let's pray as we open up. Lord, as we look at your word, I pray, God, we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear what you want us to see in your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would be receptive with obedient hearts. Help us to learn, Lord, from Elijah, from the tragic example of Ahab, from Obadiah. I pray, Lord, that we would follow after you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, I've entitled the message, A Call to True Discipleship. A Call to True Discipleship. And this morning, we're going to look at the scene of Elijah and Ahab and the the false prophets on Mount Carmel. And we're going to look at how the Lord intervenes and how he calls his people to faithful discipleship. This morning, one of the ways to break down the narrative is try to identify some of the scenes. And you could, if we were going to break this chapter down, and I gave you five minutes and I let you just read the text, and I said, okay, just start changing the scene every time you think that there's a heading that needs to be addressed. We could break this down in different ways. So I don't pretend that this is the only way to break this narrative down, but it's one that helped me just to try to get handles on it. And so this morning, several scenes that we're going to look at within the narrative of 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to look at them on the screens as we go, hopefully to give you some a sense of some guideposts along the way. The first scene that we're going to look at is God comes to Elijah. God comes to Elijah, and we read in chapter 18, immediately, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And we read in verse 2, a simple, responsive verse but one that's very profound because we get a real sense of the heart of Elijah. In verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. We, we see unquestioned obedience in this servant of the Lord. And as we were reading last time, it's really encouraging to know that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The book of James tells us he wasn't a superhero He wasn't a man that had an ability that we don't have in the sense of following God. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to follow after Christ as his children. And we see, though, in this chapter as it opens that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And that phrase, as we looked at last time at the end of the time that we had, That word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And and we see that not only the word of the Lord is true, we see that the word of the Lord is fulfilled, but we see that to follow God is to walk in submission to the word of the Lord. And Elijah is an example of this. He does what God calls him to do. And, And as we read a little further into the passage today, we're going to see that this is not something that was just simple on the surface because Ahab was a ruthless leader. And so now Elijah's called to appear before him. And so we see immediately that God comes to Elijah. And what we read about in scene two in verses three through six is that Ahab searches for water with Obadiah. Ahab searches for water with Obadiah. We read about this man named Obadiah in verse 3. It says, and Ahab called Obadiah. And who is Obadiah? Well, it tells us there in verse 3, he was over the household. He's over the household. He's got an administrative role within the kingdom 
of Ahab. And then in parentheses, it tells us, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah was a man who stood following after the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in the text here. But let's look at this. I want us to think about it immediately because even though the kingdom of Ahab is very sinful, he had done greater evil than all those before him. And we see that his wife Jezebel <coughs> was a, a wicked, wicked woman. And, and she was an evil lady. And, and this combination was disastrous to the kingdom of the north and to the influence that it had on all over the nation, not only Israel in the north, but Judah, the, the brother in the south, the kingdom of Judah. But yet in all of this, we see again, God has his people. We see not only that he called a guy from the area of Tishbe, a man named Elijah, when it looked very bleak and dark, but here within the house of Ahab is a man who fears the Lord. His name is Obadiah. And, and we'll see in the, in the verses that come that he hid the prophets of the Lord. <clears throat> he hid the prophets of the Lord. He, he risked his life in hiding the prophets of the Lord as Jezebel was seeking to kill the prophets of God. God has people in the midst of secular places. I tell you, if we remember that everyone who has a job in a secular field God calls you to be light <coughs> in the midst of where he has you. I think sometimes one of the, uh, when we lose sight of being a follower of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, can somebody grab me a bottle of water back there in the kitchen? And um, as we, oh, look at that. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> But when we, when we lose sight, that's awesome. When we lose sight that God has us in the world for ministry purposes, when we lose sight of that, the, the, the consequences are devastating. And, and don't you think that that's a subtle temptation? The subtle temptation is to think that we live our lives, we go to church somewhere, we go on the weekends, we're involved with our church family, but when it comes to the secular world, I put on my secular glasses, I put on my secular clothes, I put on my secular viewpoint, and I live within that world. And I just live as a secular citizen in that world, but I live as part of the church over here. <coughs> but what we have to see is that Ahab is an example that you can be faithful to God in the areas he's placed you. So this morning, you could ask yourself, think of your job as a creative access platform to be a light for the gospel of Christ. And if you've, if you've gotten into the trap to think that, wait a minute, I can't live as a Christian in my secular world, you've lost sight of who your primary allegiance is to. But Ahab had a servant named Obadiah. <coughs> And Obadiah sought to be faithful to the Lord in how he lived. And so we read in, in verse 4, And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And then we read in verse 5, And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, all the springs of water, and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. <coughs> really interesting here because Obadiah is willing to risk his life to hide the prophets. Again, it gives you an understanding of the wickedness of Jezebel. And so for, for Elijah to be faithful to the call of God, <coughs> and I've set a record for coughing as I've preached today. This is amazing. Elijah <coughs> has now followed the, 
the Lord in the face of not only opposition, but in the face of potential fear. Obadiah is in the house of Ahab acting as a servant of the Lord, and now they're going to look for water. It's, it's sad, isn't it, that uh, Jezebel is this type of woman. Later on <coughs> in 2 Kings, look what it says about Jezebel. Another book from now, but it says, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be? So long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. That's what's going on in the backdrop of the land. And so Ahab and Obadiah, Ahab is more aware of the physical needs of the land. He's more aware of his horses and mules. He's more concerned about his horses than he is about the spiritual climate of the people. He has no spiritual perception. He's completely deceived and removed from the spiritual needs of the nation. But let me tell you about it. He is worried about his horses and mules as there's a famine in the land. What are you concerned about this morning? And what does it reveal about your spiritual perception? What are you most concerned about? Probably, if you're like me, Often, what you're most concerned about will be in the backdrop, even as you sit in a chair listening to a sermon. What's distracting you this morning? If you follow the strings of that distraction back to your heart, it very well may reveal something about your life and your attitude towards the Lord. It hit me in looking at this. When we are deceived by sin, isn't it amazing what we are aware of and what we are unaware of. Here in this man's life, he's very unaware of the most important realities, but he's very aware of things that are temporal and not that important. Ahab was a man that sought to put his trust in his own horses in his own army, Psalm says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And when the water was scarce, it appears you could at least draw a line between the horses and this passage to see what was going on in the backdrop of Ahab's mind. That's a possible thought there. It's a possible implication. Another passage that Psalm 33 brings us to, the war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. When we lose sight of what really is important, we put our hopes into temporal, tangible, earthly expressions of false hope that, that, that can't rescue us. They divide up, they pass through the land, Ahab went in one direction, Obadiah goes in another direction, and you see the providence of God at work. It wasn't time yet for Ahab and Elijah to meet up. It was time for Ahab to meet up with Elijah. To, it, was, it was time for Elijah to meet up with Obadiah. And we move into scene three. It's simple. Elijah calls for Ahab. And in verses 7 through 16, we see that Obadiah, in verse 7, let's read verse 7, and as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? Is it you, my Lord, Elijah? Verse 8, and he answered him, it is I, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And notice Obadiah's response. In verse 9, and he said, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. This, this man from Tishbe had quite the reputation, and Ahab was after him. Ahab sought him out. And according to verse 10, no nation or kingdom where he had not sought him out. And when they would say he is not here, 
he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. He's basically saying, look, you better be telling me the truth, and I'm going to take an oath that if I find out differently, there's going to be harm. Verse 11, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you. I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab that, and, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although your, I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me? He's clearly worried about the implications of going to Ahab, isn't he? He's a nervous wreck. And it's as if I read somewhere where one guy said, you know, this is a great prize for hiding the prophets of the Lord. I've hid the prophets of the Lord. I risked my life. I hid them in 50s. I fed them with bread. I gave them water to drink. And now I win the prize of going to Ahab to tell him that the person he despises is here and you're going to go somewhere else before I get back and I'm going to be dead. Well, I tell you, if Elijah is a man with a nature like ours, then surely is Obadiah. And we read sometimes, I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed how we can sort of read the Scripture with a pious slant? And we can criticize the honesty and the transparency of the characters. You may be here reading today thinking, you know what, Obadiah is not trusting God. Obadiah... He, he shows fear here, and very likely in this moment, <clears throat> a lack of trust in the Lord. But I tell you, if we say we can't relate with this, we're lying. May we all see our common need of the Lord's grace. Obadiah needed the Lord's grace. We need the Lord's grace. And I tell you, if we're just raw and honest, we have similar struggles And often our attempt to shield that knowledge from others just serves as an example of our pride and arrogance and wanting others not to know how much we actually struggle. Amen? There's so many churches, and it's tragic, isn't it? Where the preacher has to give the impression that he's something that he's not to maintain the respect of the parishioners. I'll tell you, when we fall into that trap, we lose sight of the glory of the grace of Jesus. Because if it's by works, we would boast. And if it's by works, I can one-up you with my spirituality. But when we get honest, and we start realizing that all of us deal with our flesh, and we start understanding the weakness of who we are apart from the grace of Christ, we can identify with the struggle of Obadiah, and we can see our ultimate answer is not in looking inwardly, it's in looking to Christ. Obadiah had a need. We have a need. I like verse 16 because it's a good reminder. It may be that the text just doesn't tell us all that happened after this, or it could be showing us something. I want to give you a thought. It says in verse 16, Elijah says in verse 15, and Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. Verse 16, so Obadiah, even though he's nervous, he went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Wow. You realize it, it appears here from what we read in the text, much of what he thought didn't happen. I want to ask you a question. How much anxiety and worry have you had over the years, over this year, over the past few years, over the past few weeks, due to hypothetical meetings that you've conjured up in your mind? How much of your life is dealing with anxiety based on all the things you suspect are going to happen tomorrow? All the things you are concerned that might happen today all the things that might happen Wednesday. Oh, what will happen if I do this? Oh, what will happen when I hear this? Oh, what will happen when I go to get this report? And friend, it's a good reminder 
that we have to live in the present and we have to live not borrowing tomorrow's troubles on today, but we have to recognize that we all are tempted to struggle with these things like Obadiah, but our answer is looking and laying our burdens on the Lord and trusting him. He has a better way. I could, man, I could write that book right there of all the times in my life that I have lived with anxiety and worry and fear based on all of the things I conjured up in my mind that would take place. And the Lord has slowly over the years been teaching me that when I seek to live that way, I seek to live trying to control my life myself. But friend, we can rest in the fact that God is sovereign over our lives. And he's wiser than we are. And he's capable of putting all things together. And we're either going to seek to carry the burden of our life and carry the burden of our struggles and the burden of all the hypotheticals or we're going to recognize the futility and we're going to see the glory and the grace of the master who invites us to a different way. Obadiah goes to Ahab. Ahab goes to meet Elijah. One commentator Ralph Davis, he, he makes a really good point here. You've got really two incredible servants here that couldn't be any more different. And it, it, it's a great point. It, it's interesting. He says, faithfulness is not so dull that it comes only in one flavor. He goes on and he says, moreover, your own pride requires the correction this narrative can give. You are not called to great works, but to good works, not to flamboyant ministry, but to faithful ministry, not to be a dashing, but only a devoted servant. Elijah and Obadiah, two faithful and different servants. The service of the real God is so diverse. Elijah is the one we celebrate, but in this passage, what we're seeing is two very different people. And Obadiah is looked at as a devoted follower of Yahweh. And Elijah is exemplified as a devoted follower of Yahweh. Don't let your own insecurities as to your own gifts, your own temperament, your own way, don't compare it to someone else and then measure your successfulness or your usefulness based on your sense of your inability. Again, what is, the, what is the, the, the subtle temptation there is one of pride, isn't it? It's overthinking your own self. It's looking so much at yourself that in your humility of thinking you're nothing, you actually are looking more at yourself than looking to God. But take comfort in the fact that we are all just earthen vessels. We all are just... God, be thankful that it's the old analogy that just be thankful that you've got a piece of the pie, no matter how big that piece is. Just be thankful that God has called you to service. Just be thankful that God is glorified through his people as different and diverse as Elijah and Obadiah are. We're looking at a text that speaks to following God. And what bring, brings the Lord glory are, are, are two individuals, even in their struggles. We're going to see the struggles of Elijah as we move into chapter 19. But what we're going to see is these two men are useful unto God as they walk as humble, empty clay pots. As they walk following after the Lord, that, that's what God's calling us to. Scene four, Elijah <coughs> calls Ahab, meet me on the mountain. Verse 17, it sounds like one of the local basketball games on the mountain, you know. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? That's one of those where you go, wait a minute, what? Me, the troubler of Israel? And Ahab has wrecked havoc upon the land with his idolatry, with his arrogance, 
with his bravado, with all of this sick example of, of just pagan living. And he has the gall to accuse Elijah of bringing trouble on Israel. Isn't that fascinating? We get into verse 18, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Wow. When we think about Mount Carmel, I wanted to show you some pictures. I was looking for pictures that I had from being over there and I couldn't find them, but I found some that will will suffice. Uh, Mount Carmel is a beautiful mountain there in Israel. When you go up today in modern times, if you go up, they put up a, a, a figurative statue of Elijah there at the top of Mount Carmel. You see the trees, how lush it is. It's a beautiful area. And, and when we look at this area, it's interesting because it's right near the Mediterranean. You've got Haifa, a large city. You've got um, another picture there of the area of Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel was known as a place that would have been like the home turf for Baal. It had special connotations to the Old Testament and relating to Yahweh. And sadly, in the pagan rituals of Baal, they saw Mount Carmel as really pointing towards the the storm god of Baal. And so it's, it's fascinating that Elijah is placed in this area and he now is calling Ahab. And, and we read in uh, 19 and 20 here, it says in verse 19, Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together, at Mount Carmel. So now we come into scene five. Elijah challenges the people and gives out guidelines for the showdown. He challenges the people. And and really, the thrust of everything we're looking at here in chapter 18, around verse 21 here, is crucial. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. One commentator says that the Hebrew actually is more the sense of the passages. How long will you hobble at the crossroads? How long will you hobble on two crutches? And and this man goes on to say, the joyful dance of faith has given way to the weary shuffle of idolatry. What is going on? I think one of the hardest uh, challenges as a reader in 2022, looking back at the book of Kings, is trying to understand, okay, what is the allure of following after this faith? pagan deity, this, this false god Baal? What would be the, the allurement? Ralph Davis gives some reasons. He says, first, it carried the appeal of royal sanction. Jezebel was an avid devotee of Baal and Asherah, a zealous evangelist. Ahab may have lacked Jezebel's fanaticism, but supported her faith. And, and, and it's the idea that Israelites, he says, who wanted to get on were well advised to align themselves with the religious preferences of the power elite. If you're a follower by nature and you want to be impressive to the culture, what do you do? You act in accordance with the rules of the culture. It's fascinating, isn't it? What do you see going on today? The, the, the question, uh, and, and a lot of times, and my dad used to say this when I was a teenager, he'd say, well, I'm going to talk to the teenagers because that's when the adults listen. And I think he was right. So I'll talk to the teenagers right now because maybe the adults will listen. The teenager understands something. If, if you are going to try to make it with this culture, it is going to require 
that you follow the step of the culture. So, so what Elijah is actually saying here is, is critical. If the Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord, he is God, follow him. Understand, don't play in the middle of the crossroad where you seek to have one hand over here in the things of evangelical Christianity and one hand over here saying, you know what? I can hold this just a little bit. I can hold this over here. And not only will I be okay with the church, I'll be respected by the culture. Why do you think people are ripping apart their Bibles as to what has historically been taught as Orthodox Christian faith in order to change it all to try to do what? To be in step with the culture. If the culture will approve me, I'll gain the respect of the world. If the culture will approve of how I'm looking at things, it's amazing, isn't it, how on social media there's certain narratives that come across over the last two years and at different times, it was immediate that the, the whole world was like, okay, are you going to be lockstep with the culture? You better do this, because if you are, this is what you do now, this is what you do now, this is what you do now. And everyone, it was sort of like, I really want to follow, I want to be on the good crowd, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history, I want to follow the culture and what it tells me to do. What do they do? They follow it wherever it goes. But Elijah's saying, no, it's not the way you live, a follower of Yahweh. You can't live that way. It carried the appeal of royal sanction. But second of all, it, there was an appeal of tradition, of history. Baal worship was alive for a while now in the country, before even the time they crossed the Jordan in the book of Joshua. And, and it was something that, was appealing to a lot of people. So you've got this uh, power struggle. You've got this uh, historical sense. But there's another one here. It offered an appeal of relevance, an ability to touch felt needs, David says. They could, it, it, it was a sense of, it, 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 he says, here was a faith that suitably scratched where folks existentially itched. Finally, there was an appeal to sensuality. See, in the Bell cult, there were sexual rites built into the liturgy. What happens is, David says, what did it matter if one's marriage was rotten, one's wife uninteresting, one's life generally dull? There was always a holy whore to be had at the Bell shrine. Perhaps such considerations can help us appreciate how Baalism could fascinate and charm. Richard Caldwell, he says this. He says, the Israelites wanted to believe they could serve Yahweh and Baal. Or they tried to worship Yahweh according to the customs of the nations. Now here's the quote that really grabbed me. He says, biblical Christianity must not only be distinguished from paganism, it must be distinguished from false Christianity in worldly garb. That's the danger. The danger is, and I tell you, it's easier, isn't it, to throw stones at someone else and not look at our own heart. You know, you can, I know that's something that I can relate to. But, but I, want you to, I want you to think, the prayer here is to say, okay, Lord, would you reveal to me my own heart? Would you reveal to me my life? Would you reveal to me my, my fellowship of you? Because he's calling them, he's saying, look, if the Lord is God, there's implications in, in your discipleship. If the Lord is God, follow him. Get off the fence. Get away from the crossroads. Follow him. Follow after him. The danger of Israel was that they were lured by what Baal offered, by what they felt like Yahweh offered, and they had gotten to the place where they didn't even see the crossroad they were at. They were comfortable with it. And the dangerous thing is we could be in America as Christians 
holding on to a form of godliness while embracing worldliness and not seeing any problem at all. God had called the nation to total devotion. And he calls us as Christians, those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, to offer up our lives. When Gary earlier read Luke, he, remember, look at it again. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not just intellectual agreement. It's not just picking a church to attend at the weekends. It's not just some type of uh, religious associations. It, it affects one's life. It affects one's loves. It affects one's activities. It affects the course of the way one walks in their life. But yet you see here a silence that follows the question of Elijah. Look at the sad reality of where they are. At the end of verse 21, notice what it says, and the people did not answer him a word. They had nothing to say. They were found out. You, you can relate. I don't have a real specific illustration of it, but has anybody ever asked you a question and the question was piercing enough? And at that moment, you simply thought, yep, that's where I'm at. Silence here of apathy, maybe. Silence of guilt. Silence of a divided heart. Riken says, we cannot hedge our bets. We cannot straddle the fence. We cannot take a wait-and-see attitude about following God. The God of Elijah is exclusive he allows no rivals. He will not share his glory with any other God. To believe in God is to follow him with our whole lives. But we cannot do this if we are still on the fence trying to decide if God is God or not. If we are still on the fence, then we are not a following God and may not even know him in a saving way at all. If we are not with God, we are against him. The Bible teaches that we are separated from God by our sin and that the only way we can be delivered from eternal judgment is to trust in Jesus, believing that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave deliver us from all our sins. He goes on, he says, the Puritans used to put it this way, you cannot serve God by halves. So we need to ask ourselves, have I given my whole self to God, or am I still dragging around the ski boot of love for this world? If the Lord is God, then we are called to follow him with both feet, making him first in worship, first in work, first in leisure, and first in the life of the home. I tell you, you, you come to passages like this, and I pray that one of the backdrops of what you're seeing in the book of Kings is you understand how the Old Testament is pointing us to our need of Jesus Christ. Because once you begin to understand how you have this temptation to go this way, how you have this struggle, I pray you begin to see, wait a minute, we need a greater king than what we're reading about in the book of 1 Kings. We need a greater king. We need someone to rescue us from ourselves. How can we change apart from the grace that enables us not only to detect our waywardness, but to enable us to follow him. That's the call and the promise of the new covenant. We think about this. It could be today that we're tempted to say maybe a little bit of Jesus and materialism. I want the God of materialism. I want this over here. It could be, I tell you, one of the things we always have to be aware of in our lives is that so many times a conflicted heart is seeking to hold on to an immoral bent. It could be, I want, I want to be involved with the things of God, but I don't want to give up pornography. I want to be involved with the things of God, but I want a mind that can just run crazy over here. 
And what we see here is we can all relate. We could come up with examples. If we went around the room, you could give me so many more. Materialism, immorality are just two of many. They all come out of the same bucket, don't they? And what we see is, is like, hey, the Lord is saying to us, look, follow me, but follow me in a way that is not in halves. Follow me in a way that is not divided. Run after me with all that you have. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull. Lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God. I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. I love what he does here. You go first. You got 450. I've got one, as one man said. 450 to one odds. You like your odds? Go for it. You got 450, there's me. You're at your, you know, it's sort of like, uh, we'll play on your field, not mine. This is where you think this all goes down. This is where you think on this mountain that the storm God is going to reveal his power. Well, let's play on your turf. You got 450, your time, you go first. You have the storm God. The storm God, you would think if he was the God of storms, he could come up with a lightning bolt that would light the fire of the sacrifice. But what happens here is we see round one. We get into round one in scene six. Round one, the prophets of Baal in verse 26 through 29. What happens in 26 through 29? They took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. (laughs) This is amazing. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Think about this. I mean, they're they're dancing around. They're doing everything they can to try to, you know, get their deity to wake up and look at them. Is he in deep thought? Has he gone to the bathroom? Does he need more time, you know? Did he eat too much turkey, you know? Is he on a journey? Is he asleep? But what happens here is Elijah is pointing these people to a reality. We look at this more like a, you know, a fascinating story because of like how God intervenes, but you got to remember something. This is not only a prophet of the Lord, it's a servant of the Lord that loves these people. He's called Israel He's called the prophets to this mountain. And what his prayer and his passion is, is that the people of Israel see the glory of God and they get off the fence. They get away from the crossroads. And he wants it to be on display that the God of Israel is the true God, that he's the only real God. In verse 28, they try to, Bring on more. They cried aloud, cut themselves after their customs with sword and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This was an ancient um, practice. You know, you could really make some interesting application here. One commentator says, you may not be a prophet of Baal, but you may think like one. If only we do this, God will do this. You realize sometimes the danger of synchronistic thought where we borrow from, I don't have time to really get into that, but it's the idea that we can follow God and borrow wrong ideas about God from pagan practices. I tell you, some of the, some of the, the sad extremes of the charismatic movement have borrowed from other pagan notions and brought it into Christianity. That's just not something you have to point out with extreme charismania. I'm speaking about a lot of different things because here you've got people literally 
seeking to work themselves up and maybe God will notice and God will respond. Aren't you thankful today that our hope of God responding to us was settled at the cross? And we don't have to go through pagan ritual and we don't have to work ourselves up and do all kinds of emotional things. We don't have to act in certain ways. Our confidence is that we have a mediator We have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we approach him with boldness, not out of paganistic practices, but we approach him in boldness because he's paved the way through the shedding of his own blood. And we have access and we have hope. But, But here they are. But round two, verse 29, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. (laughs) Nope. It's setting it up. It's about three o'clock in the afternoon. Now we get to round two, scene seven. And when we moved into round two, it's about three o'clock, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came. I love this. You know why? Because in the north, you had 10 tribes. And in the south, you had two tribes. And I love what MacArthur says here. He says, the 12 stones represented the 12 tribes. Although the tribes had been divided into two nations, they were still one people in the Lord's plans with the same covenants and a single destiny. And here, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. I love this because leave no doubt. Put water all around. (laughs) Because the first thing you would think of is like, if you, how are you going to get a fire going? If you're wet, putting water on everything. And Elijah's confidence is that the fire that God will send down will leave no doubt as to who he is. In verse 34, and he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with water. Not any possibility of natural combustion, as one person said, if this offering is consumed in fire, it must be the Lord's doing. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I love that. He's not just trying to get the prophets of Baal as important as that is. His desire as a shepherd over these people is that the people's hearts would be turned back to their God. If you don't have that piece of the whole thing, you can't be a prophet of God right? The, the call of the prophet what, what was not just to do the miraculous so God could be revealed, but it was the heart of a servant, the heart of a shepherd, the heart of leading people. And what happens? We keep reading here. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. There's so many examples in the Old Testament of where fire fell and God consumed a sacrifice. And this is another example of this taking place in the life of Israel. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces. Can you imagine it? They're all there. They fall on their faces. They fall on their faces. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Scene 8. The prophets of Baal are judged. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. You may be thinking, what in the world's going on here? Well, we have to remember something. Israel was a theocracy 
One commentator says what we call church and state function is one. And here Elijah simply carries out Israel's constitution, the provisions of Yahweh's covenant law relating to solicitation to apostasy. Here it is in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But, um, that's off on the screen, just listen to this. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, redeemed you out of the house of slavery. I found this helpful. Um, one comment I came across Davis says, some readers now sigh with disappointment. We have had a perfectly marvelous day on Mount Carmel, and now Elijah goes and spoils it all. Here we go, wading into the gore of another moral problem in the savage Old Testament. Is that what we have here? Elijah giving vent to his vindictiveness? Must we chalk it up to his fanatical tendency? He goes on, he says, Elijah was carrying out the sanctions of Deuteronomy 13. Those who woo Israel to worship another god, whether a successfully wonder-working prophet, a member of one's intimate circle, or the citizens of a whole town forfeit their lives. The judgment and the wrath of God falls upon these false prophets. What a story. Next time in verse 41, we're going to continue into chapter 19. But this morning as we look at chapter 18, what does this mean for us? I was thinking about if we were going to look at chapter 18 and just say, okay, what do we learn about following God? Because that's what Elijah calls us to. If the Lord, he is God, then follow him. What do we learn about following God from God's men in chapter 18? The first observation that came out to me was following God will be against the culture. It'll be countercultural. It's going to be different than the way the culture's going. And in that, you're going to be persecuted, criticized, misunderstood, and remember, often lonely. Second observation, not only will it be countercultural, it involves being vocal. You can't follow God if you're not vocal about it. The silence was deafening in Israel, wasn't it, on as Elijah gave the call, if the Lord is God, follow him. The people said nothing, but what do we learn here? There's going to be a vocal element to following God. We can't be silent when it gets dicey. We can't get silent when it appears to be something that may be harmful to us. It's an opportunity to be a faithful witness of Christ in the midst of opposition. It'll be countercultural. It'll involve being vocal. The third observation about following the Lord, it's impossible without following the word of the Lord. Everything we see Elijah do in chapter 18 flows out of what we read in verse 1 and 2. It was the word of the Lord that came to him, the word of the Lord that called him to go about everything he did on Mount Carmel as he prays to the Lord later on in the chapter. You can't follow the Lord. I can't follow the Lord apart from following the word of God. And I pray today that we would be thankful that God has given us a sure word, a word that is reliable and sufficient and sure and true. And he calls us to obey that word, to be obedient to that word. We can't deceive ourselves into thinking that we're following the word of the Lord if we're not obedient to what it calls us to live by. But then another observation, not only is it countercultural, not only does it involve being vocal, not only does it involve following the word of the Lord, not only does it involve obedience to that word, but fifthly, it may take place in ministry, but also in the secular. Obadiah 
is a great example that following the Lord is not just for the prophet and his role as a prophet, but it's for the administrator and his role as a secular leader within the house of Ahab. Sixthly, it involves prayer. We can't follow the Lord without going to him in our weakness and trusting that he will bring it about. So many more things to say today. Some final thoughts here. Be like Daniel. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Not only be like Daniel, listen to Peter. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, but we often leave off the second part of this. And what? Live to righteousness. Take heart the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll give you the verse, it's verse 19, speaking of the Gentiles, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, he says in Ephesians 4.20, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And then in Ephesians 4.24, he says, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And offer up all that you have. Appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Would you bow your heads? Are you at a crossroads this morning? where you just can't figure out which road to take. Wanting so desperately to go down Main Street of the world, but looking at the narrow way that Christ calls you to. This morning, look to Christ. Be comforted that your only hope of going in the path that God calls you to is through the grace that he abundantly supplies. We can't do it on our own. But this morning, as the people of God, may we repent where God calls us to repent. May we confess where God calls us to confess. May we never dilute Christianity into something that is so comfortable that we're duped into thinking that we can have both. But let's pray for not only the purity of God's word to be preached, but let's pray for the purity of that word to be seen in our lives that we would follow in true discipleship to Christ. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you, God, that it's only by your grace that we can ever follow you. We praise you for that, Lord. I pray that we'd have humble hearts to receive the conviction of your spirit. I thank you, Lord, that you discipline those whom you love. I thank you, Lord, you care so much about our lives that you reveal to us the hard things. We thank you for the hope and the grace that we see even in the display of your power on Mount Carmel as you called your people to a better way. And I thank you, Lord, that even as your children today, that your kindness, 
that leads us to repentance. Oh, Lord, help us to follow after your word obediently, praising and worshiping your son who gave his life for our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.